Podmoth. Do you see dead people? Not because you're a Bruce Willis superfan, but because visits with Gma got a little weird after her funeral. Are you often up at 3 a.m. googling the various ways in which bodies decompose? But you swear it's just harmless research. Are you the first of your friend group to go on a murder tour or rent a haunted location for the night? Then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to the Identity Podcast. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Identity Podcast on the Podmoth Media Network, your weekly foray into the weird, wonky, and sometimes downright spooky. After completing the research on Jack the Ripper last week, I came to the realization that this topic is so large that it actually needs a part three. So this week I'll tackle the last two canonical Ripper victims, and also discuss the top five suspects for Jack the Ripper, as well as take a look at more recent suspicions of who the Ripper may have been. I was going to incorporate all of the remaining information into a second episode, but felt that the victims of Jack the Ripper deserved the extra airtime. If you've not yet listened to part one or part two of the Jack the Ripper series, please do so before listening to part three. As many of you know, I've been podcasting since 2017, and I thought it was about time that I created some merch. I know, I know, it's way past due. I'll drop the link in the show notes so that you can check out the designs. There are a few to choose from, and I think you'll like them. There are also lots of options from mouse pads and buttons to tees and hats. From now until September 25th, all orders are 15% off. Show off your weird side, and support your favorite podcast. Before we proceed further, please note that the information in this episode may be distressing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the show. We've already looked at the murders of Mary Ann Nichols, Annie Chapman, and Elizabeth Stride, so let's move on to Catherine Eddowes. Catherine Eddowes, aliases Kate Conway and Kate Kelly, was born in Graceley, Green Wolverhampton, on April 14, 1842. Her father George was a tin plate worker. Her mother ultimately bore ten other children when the family moved to London a year after she was born. By 1857, both parents had died and Catherine was an orphan. She was admitted to Bermondsey Workhouse. In terms of work, she traveled back and forth between Wolverhampton and Birmingham, working as a tray polisher and a tin plate stamper. 
While living in Birmingham, she met a man named Thomas Conway, who was a former soldier. The pair had two children, and Catherine had Conway's initials, tattooed in blue ink, on her left forearm. In 1868, Catherine and her family moved to London, lodging in Westminster, and had a third child together. Catherine would start drinking heavily shortly after their arrival, and eventually left Conway in 1880, moving in with a new partner named John Kelly at Cooney's Common Lodging House, 55 Flower and Dean Streets, Spitalfields. Conway drew his army pension under an assumed name and kept the location of Catherine's children a secret. Catherine would often turn to sex work to pay for her room and board, but when times were tight, she would sleep in the front room of 26 Dorset Street, known by the locals as The Shed. In September of 1888, Catherine told Kelly that she was going to visit her daughter in Bermondsey in hope of getting some money from her. Kelly, in the meantime, pawned his boots in exchange for lodging just after 8 p.m. and remained there, according to several witnesses, throughout the night. At 8.30 p.m., Catherine was discovered lying drunk on the roadway on Allgate High Street by a PC named Lewis Robinson. He took her into custody at Bishopsgate Police Station, and she was detained until she was sober enough to leave. The name she was given in booking, as she was too drunk to speak, was nothing, and she left the station at 1 a.m. on September 30th. She was last seen alive by three witnesses, Joseph Lewendi, Joseph Hyam Levy, and Harry Harris, who had just left a club on Duke Street. The men told police that she had been talking with a fair, mustached man wearing a peaked cloth cap, red scarf, and navy jacket. Swanson believed that Luende, the only one of the three who was able to give a description, had mistaken someone else for Catherine Eddowes, as all he could really say was that she was wearing black clothing. At 1.45 a.m., Catherine's body was found mutilated in the southwest corner of Mitre Square by P.C. Edward Watkins. None of the police watchmen who had patrolled the area had seen anything out of the ordinary, and none discovered her body even though they'd been there the bulk of the evening. Surgeon Dr. Frederick Gordon Brown wrote in his notes taken at the scene, quote, The body was on its back, the head turned to left shoulder. The arms by the side of the body as if they had fallen there, both palms upwards, the fingers slightly bent. A thimble was lying off the finger on the right side, the clothes drawn up above the abdomen. The thighs were naked, left leg extended in line with the body. The abdomen was exposed, right leg bent at the thigh and knee. The bonnet was at the back of the head, great disfigurement to the face. The throat cut, across below the throat was a neckerchief. The intestines were drawn out to a large extent and placed over the right shoulder. They were smeared over with some feculent matter. A piece of about two feet was quite detached from the body and placed between the body and left arm, apparently by design. The lobe and oracle of the right ear were cut obliquely through. There was a quantity of clotted blood on the pavement to the left side of the neck, round the shoulder and upper part of the arm, and fluid, blood-colored serum, which had flowed under the neck to the right shoulder, the pavement sloping in that direction. The body was quite warm, 
no death stiffening had taken place. She must have been dead most likely within the half hour. We looked for superficial bruises and saw none. No blood on the skin of the abdomen or secretion of any kind on the thighs. No spurting of blood on the bricks or pavement around. No marks of blood below the middle of the body. Several buttons were found in the clotted blood after the body was removed. There was no blood at the front of the clothes. There were no traces of recent connection. End quote. In his post-mortem notes, he wrote, quote, After washing the left hand carefully, a bruise the size of a sixpence, recent and red, was discovered on the back of the left hand between the thumb and first finger. A few small bruises of the right shin of older date. The hands and arms were bronzed. No bruises on the scalp, the back of the body, or the elbows. The cause of death was hemorrhage from the left carotid artery. The death was immediate, and the mutilations were inflicted after death. There would not be much blood on the murderer. The cut was made by someone on the right side of the body, kneeling below the middle of the body. The peritoneal lining was cut through on the left side and the left kidney taken out and removed. I believe the perpetrator of the act must have had considerable knowledge of the position of the organs in the abdominal cavity and the way of removing them. The parts removed would be of no use for any professional purpose. It required a great deal of knowledge to have removed the kidney and to know where it was placed. Such a knowledge might be possessed by one in the habit of cutting up animals. I think the perpetrator of this act had sufficient time. It would take at least five minutes. I believe it was the act of one person. End quote. Other medical officers disagreed with Brown's assessment of the skill level of Jack the Ripper, stating that they believed that he barely had the knowledge to slaughter a horse, let alone anatomical knowledge. In addition to abdominal trauma, the killer had cut Catherine's face across the nose bridge, both cheeks, and cut through the eyelids of both eyes. The tip of her nose and part of her ear had been cut off. An inquest was opened into Catherine Eddowes' murder by Samuel F. Langham on October 4th. Langham was the coroner for the City of London. Police searched house to house but found nothing suspicious. A mustard tin containing two pawn tickets were found on the body, but no money. The mention of pawn tickets in the newspaper article brought John Kelly to the coroner to identify his common-law wife. His ID was confirmed by Eliza Gold, Catherine's sister. City of London and the Metropolitan Police worked the inquiry together due to the location of Mitre Square as the case fell in both jurisdictions. At 3 a.m., a piece of fabric from Catherine's apron was found in a doorway leading to flats 108 and 119 on Galston Street in Whitechapel. It was contaminated with fecal matter, and bloodstains were present. The now-famous graffito, quote, the Jewess are the men that will not be blamed for nothing, end quote, was found on the wall at that location. It was eventually concluded that the murderer must have left Mitre Square northwards through St. James Place toward Gulston, as the officers who were patrolling the area saw no one suspicious during their beats. Police speculated that the killer actually lived very close to where Catherine Eddowes lived and likely headed back that way. 
In 2014, mitochondrial DNA was found on a shawl said to have come from the scene of Catherine Eddowes' murder. The DNA matched one of her descendants and was based on one of seven small segments sampled. Other DNA on the shawl matched that of a descendant of Aaron Kosminski, one of the Ripper suspects. While some experts believe that Kosminski was the Ripper based on this fact alone, others are skeptical. First off, no shawl was listed on the police reports or added into Catherine Eddowes' personal effects. Second, experts have said that the shawl had been openly handled, and so the samples were tainted. Catherine Eddowes was buried on the 8th of October, 1888, in the City of London Cemetery in public grave number 49336, square 318. Kelly and Catherine's sister attended the service. In 1996, cemetery authorities formally marked her grave with a plaque. Mary Jane Kelly was the fifth and final canonical Jack the Ripper victim. There's no evidence to corroborate the information Mary Jane herself gave to acquaintances of hers, and the information that we do know about her was likely embellished. In a way, I kind of like the fact that the information I know about her likely came from her own imagination, creating kind of an odd connection to the woman. Even if the story of her life was farcical, it still makes Mary Jane Kelly appear a little closer, perhaps more familiar due to the deceit than some of the other Ripper victims. Of course, we'll never know her as well as Jack himself knew her. For a time, Mary Jane was living with a man named Joseph Barnett, and she told him that she was born in Limerick, England, around 1863, and that her family relocated to Wales when she was very young. She also said that her parents had disowned her, but remained close with her sister. She said that she came from a well-to-do family, Barnett also said that Mary Jane's father was John Kelly, an iron worker, and that she'd mentioned having seven brothers and at least one sister. She once told a friend, Lizzie Albrook, that one of her family members, a female, was employed on the London theatrical stage. According to John McCarthy, her landlord, she received infrequent communications from Ireland. He said that Mary Jane was an excellent scholar, and an artist of no mean degree. But told police after her murder, they did often read newspaper reports of the Whitechapel murders to her, suggesting that she was illiterate. Mary Jane was known by the nickname Black Mary, suggesting that her hair color was likely dark brunette. To others, she was known as Fair Emma. A story in the Daily Telegraph of November 10, 1888, described her as tall, slim, fair, of fresh complexion, and of attractive appearance. At age 16, she married a coal miner by the name of Davis, or Davies, but he was killed shortly thereafter in a mining explosion, and without any way to support herself financially, Mary Jane moved to Cardiff and began a career in sex work. In 1884, she relocated to London, and worked both in a tobacco shop in Chelsea and as a domestic servant in Crispin Street, Spitalfields. The following year in 1885, she moved again to the central London district of Fitzrovia, and once more to eventually live with Mrs. Buki in a lodging near the London dock, North Quay. 
It's apparent at this point that Mary Jane had taken to East End life quickly. Buhi recalled a trip that they took to the home of a French lady in Knightsbridge to demand the return of a box of expensive dresses. It's believed that this event was likely a means to avoid retribution from her procurer, or pimp. At this point, she also began drinking heavily. While drunk, Mary Jane was often abusive to those around her, earning the nickname Dark Mary. I'm keen on protein powders that give me a little extra boost. There are mornings when I just can't get up and eat a huge breakfast, so I make a protein shake instead, and the powders I got from Unico Nutrition hit the spot. There are so many delicious flavors. Vanilla ice cream milkshake, ooey gooey frosted cinnamon roll, spoonful of peanut butter with chocolate, Aunt Judy's banana cream pie, molten chocolate lava shake, cookies and cream dream, and candy shop caramel squares. They even have a birthday cake cupcake with rainbow sprinkles. Unico protein powder for women and men is the perfect guilt-free indulgence. Use the low-carb protein shakes for faster recovery after workouts, healthier snacking, or even as a meal replacement. The powder itself is so fine that it blends seamlessly into milkshakes and mixes for baked goods. And Unico has a bunch of recipes on their website for delicious donuts and keto-friendly cinnamon rolls, to name a few. Unico's everyday wellness supplements help replenish essential nutrients and help you live your best life. Trim down and tone up with Unico's best-in-class supplements for weight loss, carefully formulated with five patented all-natural ingredients to help you achieve your healthiest physique. Right now, listeners of the Identity Podcast can save $20 on their purchase at uniconutrition.com. Just head on over to their website and use code Identity at checkout. That's O-D-D-E-N-T-I-T-Y. Say goodbye to chalky, tasteless protein powders and supplements that fall flat, and say hello to Unico Nutrition. It's like a bunch of unicorns are having a rave in your mouth. Seriously. In 1887, Mary Jane took up with a fish porter named Joseph Barnett. He took her for a drink, and they moved in together after the second date, before moving again to Miller's Court off Dorset Street in February or March of 1888. At some point after moving into the sparsely furnished flat, Mary Jane lost her door key, and instead of informing the landlord, she'd reach her arm in through a broken window and bolt and unbolt the door. A neighbor claimed that Mary Jane had broken the window while drunk, and that a man's coat was often pushed into the opening to keep out the cold. During this time, it seems Mary Jane was living rather comfortably with Barnett. But after he lost his job due to theft in July of that year, she was forced to return to sex work. She began allowing other sex workers to sleep in the room, but Barnett became frustrated by this, and eventually found other lodgings only a week before Mary Jane's murder. He still visited her daily, and sometimes gave her money. On the 8th of November, Burnett, a friend named Maria Harvey, and Lizzie Albrook visited Mary Jane. Burnett returned to his lodging and played cards with other residents until around 12.30 a.m. Mary Jane was seen at the Ten Bells public house with Elizabeth Foster, and later in the evening with two acquaintances at the Horn of Plenty pub on Dorset. 
Marianne Cox, another sex worker, said she'd seen Mary Jane return home at around 11.45 p.m. with a stout man with ginger hair. He was wearing a black bowler hat, had a thick mustache, and was carrying a can of beer. She also said that the man had blotches on his face. Cox said she heard Mary Jane singing, A violet I plucked from mother's grave when a boy, when she passed by her room, but the singing had stopped when she went to bed at 1.30 a.m. I've added a link to the song in the show notes. On November 9th at around 2 a.m., George Hutchinson, a laborer, encountered Mary Jane, who asked him for a loan of six pence. Hutchinson claimed that he was broke, and she left him, walking toward Thrall Street. He said a man of Jewish appearance approached and spoke with her. Hutchinson claimed that the man hid his face while he walked past and was dressed very fine in a very poor neighborhood. He would later give police a description of the man and would even tell them the color of the stranger's eyelashes, even though there was no way for Hutchinson to know this at the early hours of the morning on a darkened street. He said Mary Jane told the man, All right, my dear, come along. You'll be comfortable. Hutchinson followed the two to 13 Miller Court, where they entered. He didn't see either of them again before he left at 2.45 a.m. Sarah Lewis, a laundress, confirmed Hutchinson's statements. Lewis also saw a stout man. Marianne Cox would report hearing someone leaving Mary Jane's flat at approximately 5.45 a.m., but heard no sound and saw no light in the window. In the East End, according to some witnesses, it was not uncommon to hear the cry of murder in the night. Residents of the lodging house reported hearing a faint cry of murder between 3.30 and 4 a.m., but did nothing. Lewis said, only one scream. I took no notice of it. An ex-soldier, Thomas Boyer, went to Mary Jane's flat on the morning of November 9th in order to collect 29 shillings owed in back rent shortly after 10.45 a.m. He knocked, but when he got no answer, he removed clothing lodged in the broken window and saw Mary Jane's mutilated body on the bed. He then ran to find the landlord, McCarthy, who told him to inform the Commercial Road Police Station. Boyer told Inspector Walter Beck, quote, Another one, Jack the Ripper, awful, McCarthy sent me, end quote. Beck and Boyer returned to Miller's Court, and Beck immediately asked for the assistance of Dr. George Baxter Phillips. He also secured the scene, preventing anyone from entering. Beck also requested bloodhounds, but as we found out last week, the bloodhounds would never come. Superintendent Thomas Arnold and Inspector Edmund Reed from Whitechapel's H Division, as well as Frederick Aberline and Robert Anderson from Scotland Yard, arrived at the crime scene between 11.30 a.m. and 1 p.m. News of the murder spread rapidly, and it wasn't long before crowds in excess of 1,000 people gathered at each end of Dorset Street, hoping to catch a glimpse of the crime scene and the victim. They voiced their frustration to the press. Police took two official crime scene photos of Mary Jane's body and transported her to the mortuary in Shoreditch. 
Her body was identified by Joseph Barnett, who would recognize her remains from the ear and the eyes. John McCarthy also viewed the remains and was certain it was Mary Jane Kelly. Dr. Thomas Bond and Dr. Phillips examined the body, placing time of death at around 12 hours before examination. In his official notes, Bond wrote, quote, The body was lying naked in the middle of the bed, the shoulders flat, but the axis of the body inclined to the left side of the bed. The head was turned on the left cheek. The left arm was close to the body, with the forearm flexed at a right angle and lying across the abdomen. The right arm was slightly abducted from the body and rested on the mattress. The elbow was bent, the forearm supine with fingers clenched. The legs were wide apart, the left thigh at right angles to the trunk, and the right forming an obtuse angle with the pubis. The whole of the surface of the abdomen and thighs was removed, and the abdominal cavity emptied of its viscera. The breasts were cut off, the arms mutilated by several jagged wounds, and the face hacked beyond recognition of the features. The tissues of the neck were severed, all round down to the bone. The viscera were found in various parts, viz. the uterus and kidneys, with one breast under the head, the other by the right foot, the liver between the feet, the intestines by the right side, and the spleen by the left side of the body. The flaps removed from the abdomen and thighs were on a table. The bed clothing on the right corner was saturated with blood, and the floor beneath was a pool of blood, covering about two feet square. The wall by the left side of the bed, and in a line with the neck, was marked by blood, which had struck it in several places. The face was gashed in all directions. The nose, cheeks, eyebrows, and ears were partly removed. The lips were blanched and cut by several incisions, running obliquely down the chin. There were also numerous cuts extending irregularly across all the features. The neck was cut through and the skin and other tissues right down to the vertebrae, the fifth and sixth being deeply notched. The skin cuts in the front of the neck showed distinct acheamosis. The air passage was cut at the lower part of the larynx through the cricoid cartilage. Both breasts were more or less removed by circular incisions, the muscle down to the ribs being attached to the breasts. The intercostals between the fourth and fifth and sixth ribs were cut through and the contents of the thorax visible through the openings. The skin and tissues of the abdomen from the costal arch to the pubes were removed in three large flaps. The right thigh was denuded in front of the bone, the flap of skin including the external organs of generation and part of the right buttock. The left thigh was stripped of skin, fascia, and muscles as far as the knee. The left calf showed a long gash through the skin and tissues to the deep muscles and reaching from the knee to five inches above the ankle. Both arms and forearms had extensive jagged wounds. The right thumb showed a small superficial incision about an inch long with extravisation of the blood in the skin. And there were several abrasions on the back of the hand, moreover showing the same condition. On opening the thorax, it was found that the right lung was minimally adherent by old firm adhesions. The lower part of the lung was broken and torn away. The left lung was intact. 
it was inherent at the apex that there were few incisions over the side. In the substances of the lung, there were several nodules of consolidation. The pericardium was open below and the heart absent. In the abdominal cavity, there was some partly digested food of fish and potatoes, and similar food was found in the remains of the stomach attached to the intestines. End quote. Phillips wrote, In each case, the mutilation was inflicted by a person who had no scientific nor anatomical knowledge. In my opinion, he does not even possess the technical knowledge of a butcher or horse slaughterer or a person accustomed to cut up dead animals. The images of Mary Jane Kelly's remains are by far the most disturbing and graphic. The Ripper had ample undisturbed time with her, and the damage to the corpse illustrates that fact. On November 12th, the coroner of Northeast Middlesex presided over an inquest into Mary Jane Kelly's death. Inspector Aberline would take the jury to view the body at the mortuary, and then brought them back to Shoreditch Town Hall to hear the testimony of witnesses. Dr. Phillips stated cause of death was a severing to the right carotid artery. All other mutilations were post-mortem. He estimated time of death between 2 a.m. and 8 a.m., and her last meal consisted of fish and potatoes. Her right thumb was cut, and Phillips saw this as a possible defensive wound. The knife used was at least six inches long and one inch wide. When Aberline testified, he stated that the door to the flat had been forced open around 1.30 p.m. and had noticed that clothing had been burned in the fireplace, likely to provide enough light for the murderer to work. The inquest lasted only one day. Aberline told the jury, quote, My own opinion is that it is very unnecessary for two courts to deal with these cases and go through the same evidence time after time, which only causes expense and trouble. If the coroner's jury can come to a decision as to cause of death, then that is all they have to do. From what I learn, the police are content to take the future conduct of the case. It is for you to say whether you will close the inquiry today. If not, we shall adjourn for a week or fortnight to hear the evidence that you may desire. End quote. The jury returned a verdict of willful murder after a short deliberation. Inquiries to the residents of the lodging house and surrounding area continued, as did interviews with potential witnesses. It seems many of the witnesses were unreliable, having mistaken someone else for Mary Jane Kelly at the time that they said they saw her. No one was ever charged or tried for Mary Jane's murder, and it's believed that the murder stopped because the culprit was either locked up in jail or an institution, had immigrated, or had died. Mary Jane Kelly was laid to rest on November 19, 1888, in St. Patrick's Roman Catholic Cemetery in Leightonstone. Her grave marker reads, In loving memory of Mary Jeanette Kelly, None but lonely hearts can know my sadness. Love lives forever. Her funeral was attended by a representative of John McCarthy, Joseph Bennett, and six others who knew Kelly and had testified in the court proceedings. Several thousand gathered to observe the final procession. No family members could be found to attend the funeral. So from here, let's take a look at the list of suspects. 
the list of Ripper suspects is actually quite long, so I've narrowed it to the five most likely and most popular suspects. At one point, Lewis Carroll was suspected, so the pool has become a little muddled. First on the list is Montague John Druitt. Druitt was Oxford educated and came from fairly good stock, but some believe that Druitt was sexually insane. Druitt was born in Wimburn, Minister Dorset, and once worked as a schoolmaster in Blackheath, London. There isn't any concrete scientific evidence to pin the Ripper killings on him, but one police detective, Melville Leslie McNaughton, was convinced of his guilt. After Druitt's suicide, the Ripper killing ceased. He was seen in the Whitechapel area around the time of the Ripper murders, and Druitt lived only a few miles from Whitechapel on the other side of the Thames. Druitt's body was found floating in the Thames just seven weeks after Mary Kelly's murder. Authorities determined the cause of death was suicide, and that the body had been in the water for several weeks. Carl Fagenbaum was a 54-year-old merchant sailor and was a known psychopath who confessed to mutilating women. Even his lawyer believed that Fagenbaum was the Ripper. His proximity to Whitechapel and his past made him a likely suspect. He was known to work as a merchant on ships docked in the area. Fagenbaum was working in Whitechapel on the date of the five canonical murders, and he and his co-workers frequented brothels in the area, leading many to believe that he'd been familiar with all five victims. After he emigrated to America around 1890, he was convicted of murdering a woman named Juliana Hoffman and was sent to the chair. Experts have determined that there were striking similarities between the Ripper killings and Hoffman's murder. Aaron Kosminski was a Polish barber whose mitochondrial DNA was supposedly found on Catherine Eddowes' shawl. As I mentioned, the shawl was never entered into evidence, so it's not a formal clue, but many Ripperologists hang their hat on this being a key clue in the identity of the Ripper. Born in Russia, Kosminski settled in London in the early 1880s and was living and working in Whitechapel during the murders. He was also Jewish, and given the fact that many witnesses had described the Ripper as foreign-looking, he was a likely suspect. He had a strong hatred of women, homicidal tendencies, and was institutionalized in 1889. He died in the asylum. Kosminski was not pinpointed as a suspect in the killings until many years later, but police documents revealed that police officials suspected him of the crimes. My old deodorant just wasn't cutting it anymore. I was constantly itchy and frequently had rashes under my arms. Then I switched to Lumi. In case you were wondering, everything they say in the cute advertisements with the French lady that you've seen are true. Lumi is a natural deodorant for underarms and private parts that's clinically proven to last up to 48 hours. I can now go almost 72 hours without reapplication. I also use Lumi on my feet, and they have a line of soap, lotion, and wipes to satisfy all of your stink suppression needs. Lumi was invented by an OBGYN, is safe for any external use, and is made without aluminum, baking soda, or fragrance oils, 
so it's safe for even the most sensitive skin. But Lumi still smells pleasant. I'm partial to the juniper berry and clean tangerine myself, but there's also jasmine rose, silver spruce, lavender sage, coconut crush, and unscented. Right now, Lumi is offering first-class shipping on USPS orders over $20 or more, and there's always a sensational sale on their site. You see what I did there? And as a bonus, if you buy using my link, you'll be automatically entered to win a free Lumi product every week. So head on over to the Lumi website via the link in the show notes and take Lumi out for a spin. Lumi, for everyone's pits and stinky bits. Francis Craig, Mary Kelly's husband, was also a suspect. Craig was a reporter at the time of the murders and was charged with covering the police courts and inquests into the Whitechapel murders. He also handled the coverage of other crimes in the East End. Born in 1837, he was the son of a well-known Victorian social reformer, and some suggested that Craig was suffering from schizotypal personality disorder. He lived on Mile End Road in Whitechapel, minutes from the first murder scene, and married Elizabeth Weston Davies, known as Mary Jane Kelly, the Ripper's final victim. Apparently, Craig was unaware that Mary Kelly was a sex worker, and she went into hiding in the East End under her pseudonym. It's thought that Craig began plotting her murder, but killed other sex workers in the area beforehand, either as practice or to disguise his involvement. Author Patricia Cornwell is fond of Walter Sickert, an artist, as the Ripper. She even claimed in her book, Portrait of a Killer, Jack the Ripper Case Closed, that she had DNA evidence linking Sickert to at least one of the Ripper letters. Even before Cornwell's book, Sickert was believed to have been behind the murders. Suspicion goes all the way back to 1970. Born in Munich in 1860, Sickert emigrated with his family to London in 1869. He was known for creating artwork of the sex workers that he had relations with, and some people believe that he actually left clues within the artwork pertaining to the Ripper murders. Apparently some of these clues are so like the actual crime scenes that experts claim only the true murderer could have created them. Some believe that Sickert was impotent, having had several surgeries to correct the issue, and experts have always believed that this impotence could have fueled the Ripper killings. This is likely why he treated sex workers so violently. Cornwall stated that mitochondrial DNA was found on several of the Ripper communications and that the DNA had been a match to Sickert. This was still not enough to convince some experts. Sickert passed away in 1942. Now that we've worked our way through the investigation, canonical victims, and top suspects, let's fast forward to modern day. Recently, new information has been presented, and another possible Ripper suspect has surfaced. The name currently on Ripperologist's lips is James Maybrick. Maybrick was a cotton merchant in Liverpool. Apparently, a diary surfaced in 1992 that supposedly belonged to Maybrick, but DNA analysis is inconclusive, and the author of the diary doesn't ever identify himself by name. However, it's obvious by the content and personal references that the diarist is the Liverpool cotton merchant 
Within the document, the author claims to have seen his wife with her unnamed lover in the Whitechapel district of Liverpool. It also contains long-winded descriptions of the murders and a sign-off that reads, quote, I give my name that all know of me, so history do tell. What love can do to a gentle man born. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper, end quote. The diary was given to a former Liverpool scrap metal merchant named Michael Barrett by a friend named Tony Devereaux in a pub in 1992. Up until the emergence of this diary, there was never any suggestion or suspicion that James Maybrick was the Ripper. Many Ripperologists are divided on the validity of the diary. It might be the genuine article, but much research will have to be done on the document to prove not only its validity, but also whether or not the contents match up with the actual crime scene descriptions and the known facts about the case. It's been decided by many experts that the document is of the correct period to have been written by Maybrick, but further forensic analysis is needed to establish exactly when the entries were written. Michael Barrett had confessed that he'd forged it, but he's retracted this confession. His then-wife stated that the diary had been in the family since the Second World War, so the jury is still out on authenticity. In addition to Barrett's confession complicating the issue, there's also the fact that many of the entries seem to be dictating press reports of the time, written after the newspapers had published information on the crimes, and so the content is problematic as it replicated some of the inaccuracies and errors in regards to the murders. For example, the diary states that Mary Jane Kelly's organs were placed all around the room, but the placement of her organs was confined to the bed and immediate area. The author states that they were, quote, hung around the walls like Christmas decorations, end quote, which is absolutely not the case. It's comments like these that cast doubt on the diary's validity. However, there is one piece of evidence that links Maybrick to the crimes. In 1993, Albert Johnson purchased an antique gold watch that had the initials of all five of the Ripper's canonical victims. It also had the signature of J. Maybrick and the words, I am Jack. Although scientific analysis has found that the scratches are compatible with the period, 1888 to 89, the findings are disputed. It's possible that both the watch and the diary were created around the same time, but the two have never been satisfactorily linked. From Wikipedia, quote, Dr. Stephen Turgus of the Corrosion and Protection Center at the University of Manchester Institute of Science and Technology examined the watch using an electron microscope. He stated, On the basis of evidence, especially the order in which the markings were made, it is clear that the engravings predate the vast majority of superficial surface scratch marks, the wear apparent on the engravings, evidenced by the rounded edges of the markings, and polishing out in places would indicate a substantial age. Whilst there is no evidence which would indicate a recent, last few years origin, it must be emphasized that there are no features observed which conclusively prove the age of the engravings. They could have been produced recently and deliberately artificially aged by polishing, but this would have been a complex, multi-stage process. Many of the features are only resolved by the scanning electron microscope, 
not being readily apparent in optical microscopy. And so, if they were of recent origin, the engraver would have to be aware of the potential evidence available from this technique, indicating a considerable skill and scientific awareness." End quote. In 1994, the watch was taken to the Interface Analysis Center at Bristol University and studied by Dr. Robert Wilde using an electron microscope and auger electron spectroscopy. Dr. Wilde found that, quote, provided the watch has remained in normal environment, it would seem likely that the engravings were at least several tens of years age. In my opinion, it's unlikely that anyone would have sufficient expertise to implant aged brass particles into the base of the engravings, end quote. Maybrook died in 1889. His wife was convicted of murdering him by poisoning him with arsenic. And his role as Jack the Ripper is still under speculation. Perhaps we'll never know if he, or any of the other suspects in the case, committed these crimes, and will forever have to live with the speculation and doubt. That's it for this week, dear listeners. I hope you enjoyed the three-part series on Jack the Ripper. Our next trip into the world of the creepy, weird, and paranormal will occur on October 5th. Until next time, stay spooky. The Identity Podcast is brought to you on a weekly basis by host Janine Mercer. The podcast is written, produced, and edited by Janine Mercer, unless otherwise stated, and the music is provided by GarageBand. Find The Odd Pod on Twitter and Instagram at IdentityPod and Facebook as The Identity Podcast. You're welcome to email suggestions for future episodes to theidentitypodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like a transcript of this episode, one will be available at theidentitypodcast.wordpress.com. Please take a moment to leave a five-star review on iTunes. And if you haven't already, please make sure to mash that subscribe button to be sure you're in the know when a new episode drops. Sincerest thanks to all that have promoted the Identity Podcast to their family, friends, and coworkers. Every little bit helps. Thank <laughs> you.